Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Good morning, friends, and welcome to this week's True Crime Tuesday. Um, I did realize that after I recorded the Serial Killer Sunday, today was supposed to be my off week, but I'm not a liar, so here I am. <laughs> I'm making sure that, uh, you know, I've got the time, uh, one of my jobs has been canceled indefinitely, and the other one I work from home for half the day. So, listen, I was surprised to find out that my one full-time job considers me an essential employee, but at the same point in time, with, you know, my brother and all my friends working in the food industry, um, I'm really not that mad about it because at least now I'm still employed for now and I still have a job for now so I can support those smaller businesses um, that may be struggling right now. So, um, yeah, as weird as it is that I'm considered essential, uh, I'm not going to fight it and I'm just going to go to work. How about that? Um, but so I do have a lot more time on my hands because um, I'm not spending 15 hours of my week at a part-time job. So, I'm using that to appease you friends during these trying times. Um, so with that being said, it is the morning time. Good morning. Like I said, I don't know why I'm doing these the day of now. That seems, you know what? We upped my dose, my Dozak, my Prozac dose and life is just grand. Life is delightful. Um, focus on your mental health during these times, friends, because it makes all the difference. Um, so I did say I was going to cover an unsolved crime, and I know you know that I typically don't like to do, um, over-covered crimes, over-overdone ones, um, just because I think those are boring. Um, but I did cover this one when January 29th, 2019. So we're going back into the archive of CabernetandTrueCrime.com, the old blogs I used to wrote, wrote? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I need, I need more coffee. Hang on. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> I don't know what that was all about. Um, so with that being said, um, this one, I, I was hesitant to do, but I always said if I was going to do it, um, I would A, do it for my own interest, which I did, and B, I want to go into as much detail as physically possible, um, for that crime. Um, so this one, I went more into detail. Well, it's easier to do that because uh, it's unknown. Nobody knows who ever did these. So um, it's easier to go into more focus on the actual victims themselves, which I did. And I kind of went into the history of the era, too, to see how this came to be. So today, my friends, we're talking about Jack the Ripper. And a great wine to pair with this crime is the Jack Cabernet, which there is a link on my website, which is down right now. <laughs> so, um, but if you do type in Cabernet and True Crime and Jack the Ripper, this article will show up. Um, I do have links and pictures in here, which I didn't realize how, um, some of these ended up really big and they're actually really horrifying. Fun fact. Okay. So one of the, um, one of the pictures from the Jack the Ripper case they did, like, a what it would look like if it were colorized or, like, if you had actually been there to see the body since it's one of the grainier ones. I'll talk about it when I get there. And, like, no joke, nightmare fuel. It unsettled me in such a way that, I mean, I it bothered me for some time. And, well, I mean, that's not saying a lot, though, because um, that new Skittles commercial with the goo, the yogurt man, is horrifying. Like, I saw that late at night and I, had to, I like, almost threw my phone because it scared me. 
do with that information what you will, because <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, um, there's only a couple things in my life that have really unsettled me like that. It's the girl crawling out of the TV from the ring, the yogurt man, and the one picture from the Jack the Ripper case. I, I also try not to find things that unsettle me, so maybe that's why I'm a little vanilla. I don't typically look at crime scene photos if I know they're gonna be gross, so I, I typically, uh, if I see them, I see them, but I don't typically go searching for them. Listen, I'm not a, com <laughs> not that you're a monster for doing that, but I'm not a complete monster. I want to know how these people die, but not, like, I don't want to see it, right? Sorry for the longest intro ever. Let's get started. Um, so like I said, I'm reading this to you. Let's get started, but not just, just kidding. Fine. <laughs> um, over a cent for, wow. Hang on. This is why I don't record early in the morning, because it's already a shit show. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. For over a century, historians, criminologists, and true crime addicts have theorized over the crimes that took place in, the, in Whitechapel. Today, we delve into the mystery that is Jack the Ripper. In order to fully understand Jack the Ripper and his crimes, it may be important to know the surrounding area and the history leading up to them. In the mid-19th century, around the 1850s, Britain had a large influx of Irish immigrants, mostly due to the Irish potato famine that took place from 1845 to 1852, which displaced millions of Irish. Although the vast majority of immigrants fleeing Ireland would wind up in the United States, the population of several British or several English cities, including the East End of London, swelled. As if the swell of Irish immigrants hadn't been enough, 30 years later in 1882, England and the surrounding countries experienced yet another wave of immigrants, Jewish refugees fleeing the Tsar-ruled Russia. Although there had always been tension in Russia pertaining to this issue, in 1881 and 1882, there was a bout of mass violence against the Jews in southwestern Imperial Russia, which would eventually become Ukraine and Poland. Um, triggered by the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, which some blame the Jewish for. These new immigrants also caused the population to rise, and subsequently, the Whitechapel District of London was overcrowded. Work and living conditions worsened and steered toward a significant economical shift where the underclass soared. This led to robbery, violence, and alcohol dependency in the area, and the endemic um, poverty pushed a great deal of women in sex work. In October of 1888, London police estimated there were 62 brothels and about 1,200 sex workers in the Whitechapel area alone. Between 1886 and 1889, sex, alcohol, and violence were running rampant in Whitechapel, and then the bodies started piling up. Eleven separate murders happened from April 3, 1888 to February 13, 1891. These are known, collectively, as the Whitechapel murders. The heated argument surrounding these murders is that there are people who believe that all of them were committed by our guy, Jack the Ripper. However, the most ever anyone can agree on are five, dubbed the canonical five, and we'll get to those, but for now, we're going to start at the beginning. So, Whitechapel murder victim number one. Emma Elizabeth Smith was attacked on April 3, 1888. Emma was a sex worker living in a boarding house in the Whitechapel area. Her past, for the most part, is a mystery. On this night in particular, she was viciously assaulted on the streets, but was able to walk back to her lodging house. She told the deputy keeper, Mary Russell, she had been attacked by two or three men, one of whom was a teenager. Emma was taken to the hospital, where she fell into a coma and died the next day. Emma Smith is not a candidate for the canonical five for one good reason. She described several attackers. At the time, most sex workers were owned by gangs, 
Due to her vocation, Mysteria's past, and how many people attacked her, her death is typically chalked up to gang activity. Whitechapel murder victim number two. Martha Tabram had a troubled past. Born in 1849, Martha was the youngest of five children. When she was 16, her parents split up, and shortly after, her father died suddenly. Four years later, she married her husband, Charles Tabram, and they had two sons. The marriage was troubled, predominantly due to Martha's drinking, and ended in 1875. After her split with Charles, Martha was living on and off with a man named Henry Turner, but in 1888, Martha was living by herself in a lodging house in Spitalfields. On the evening of August 6, 1888, Martha was drinking with another sex worker at the Angel and Crown, a white chapel pub. She and Marianne Connolly were drinking with clients until 11.45 p.m. when the pairs parted ways. Around 2 a.m. on August 7th, residents in the area were awoken to the cries of murder, but apparently that kind of thing was normal and no suspicions were aroused. Which, um, that reminds me a lot of the uh, Kitty Genovese case where, what is it, 37 people saw her getting attacked and nobody called the police, this type of thing, um, where there were several people who heard her or somebody screaming murder, but nobody checked on her. Because they, it's that, what, there's a whole documentary about it of, like, people assuming that if other people see it, they'll be the one to make the call so you don't have to type deal. Um, you're assuming somebody else is going to help, but everybody assumes that somebody else is going to help, and so nobody helps. Probably something like that. Um, or it was just normal for the time. I don't know. I was, when I first wrote that, I was thinking of the the Kitty Genovese case. So I, you know, that is what it is. Um, <clears throat> over the next three hours, other people had seen Tabram lying on the stairs of an entryway, but assumed she was a, quote, sleeping vagrant or drunk and passed out. It wasn't until 5 a.m. that anyone realized that it was actually a dead body. Martha Tabram was stabbed 39 times in the torso and neck. Her autopsy listed the following stab wounds, nine in her throat, five in her left lung, two in her right lung, one in her heart, five in her liver, two in her spleen, and six in her stomach. She was lying on her back with her skirts pulled up and stomach exposed, indicating her body was purposely left in a sexual position. No suspect was ever arrested. So I have a writer's note here, which thanks past Jana. <clears throat> um, so my writer's note is that although Martha isn't part of the canonical five, it is my personal opinion that she could very well have been Jack the Ripper's first victim. Um, one of the common trends of Jack the Ripper is escalation, even in, even within the canonical five. So there's clear evidence of escalated brutality, starting with Marianne Nichols, whom had her throat slit and lacerations to her stomach, to the fifth victim, Mary Jane Kelly, whose throat, has been, whose throat had been cut down to the bone and her abdomen had literally been emptied of all of her organs. Also, it could be noted that in the future slangs, there will be no cries of murder and nothing suspicious noted. I believe our assailant picked up his MO of slitting the throat first after his interaction with Martha Tabram, making sure his victims couldn't cry for help. See, so there's... Uh, yeah, I, I really do believe that, that she's the first one. Um, and maybe it may have been Jack the Ripper's first murder ever, and he, you know, he had this bloodlust or something for killing, and then he, he learned from this, right? Because, like I said, he, Jack the Ripper's victims and the Whitechapel murders, the ones that are considered his, all had their throat slit after this murder. Just a thought. Um... Another reason why Tabram is doubted as one of Jack's victims is the fact that she was only stabbed in her abdomen, not sliced. Um, but I also think that being stabbed 39 times 
with at least 20 of those being in the abdomen, um, it really isn't that hard to imagine that in his next crimes, he would slice instead of stabbed. Um, there was also no motive from Tabr- for Tabram's murder, and that's a theme that surrounds all of Jack's crimes. So, although, I will say, Martha Tabram is not part of the canonical five that are all agreed upon to be Jack the Ripper's victims, I think she should be, personally. I don't think it's that hard of, that much of a stretch from the imagination for you to imagine, that sounded weird, that she was part of it. Um... And I don't think it's fair to base this off of the ones we know are... Like, so, if you think about any serial killer, right, they don't kill these same people the exact same way every time. Like, they have a trademark or, you know, something about their crimes, their their victim profiling, whatever they do. She fits the profile. She... She goes in with escalation. Because if you're going to call the other five canonical, canonical that you're going to agree upon the fact that they're all his victims, well, they're not all the same either. There's definitely an escalation. So I think just tag her on, make it the canonical six, bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle. There we go. Now we're on to Whitechapel murder victim number three and the canonical five number one. Marianne Nichols was born in 1845 to a locksmith and his wife in Soho. In 1864, she married William Nichols, a printer mechanist. Machinist? Mechanist? Sorry, machinist. (laughs) Um, Things seemed to be going well for the new Nichols family. They had five children, three boys and two girls, but unknown reasons, probably due to alcohol, the marriage ended in 1880 or 1881. After this time, Mary spent her remaining years in work and boarding houses, living off handouts and sex work. In 1888, Nichols took a job as a domestic servant for a family in Wandsworth. She left shortly after she started. Um, she was an alcoholic, and her new employers were teetotalers, which, if you don't know what that means, it means they don't approve of the drinking of alcohol, more or less. There's other reasons for it, but that's... At the end of the day, they don't approve you drinking alcohol, and she was an alcoholic, so that was probably not a very good fit. Um, she stole clothing and money in her departure, and after this, she lived in a Whitechapel lodging house. Mary's last evening is very well documented. At 11 p.m. on August 30th, 1888, she was uh, seen walking on Whitechapel Road. At 12.30 a.m. August 31st, she was seen leaving a pub. Around 1.30 a.m., she was turned away from her lodging house because she didn't have enough money to pay for the night. Um, she said she would return soon, alluding that the new bonnet she was wearing would attract more customers. Mary was last seen alive at 2.30 a.m. by her lodging house roommate. Nichols was boasting that she had earned over three times the amount of money she needed, but had spent it all on alcohol. Her body was found on the ground of a gated stable entrance at 3.40 a.m. Her skirt was raised, and the two men that found her stated that they weren't sure if she was dead or just unconscious, so they pulled on her dress and went to find a policeman. What good people. Um, no one had reported seeing or hearing anything suspicious. Mary's throat had been slit twice from left to right. Her abdomen was mutilated with one deep, jagged wound with several small incisions surrounding it. Police were surprised by the small amount of blood at the scene with about, um, quote, about enough to fill two large wine glasses. Um, this led to the suspicion that she was killed elsewhere and moved, but it appeared later that her clothing and hair had absorbed the majority of her blood. She had five teeth missing, a laceration on her tongue, and a bruise running along the lower part of her jaw. She had no identification on her, but was eventually identified by the workhouse laundry mark on her petticoats. She um, is currently buried in the City of London Cemetery, lot 210752. 
Whitechapel murder victim number four, canonical five, number two. Eliza Ann Annie Smith was born on eight, in 1841. In 1869, she married maternal relative John Chapman. The two had three children, um, two girls and one boy. No, the, the couple had... Oh, sorry, I have too many numbers here. The two had three children, two girls and one boy. I said that, but that didn't feel like that's didn't feel like what I said. Um, their youngest was born disabled, and the eldest died of meningitis at age 12. Unable to handle the grief and tragedy of their lives, both John and Annie took up drinking and were separated in 1884. By 1886, Annie Chapman had made her way to Whitechapel, and when her marital allowance suddenly stopped, she found out her husband had died from alcohol-related causes, causing Anne, Annie's depression to spiral further. In 1888, she was living in a lodging house um, funded by crochet work and selling flowers, but also supplemented by the occasional prostitution. On September 8th, around 1.45 a.m., Annie realized she didn't have enough money to pay for her board for that night, and she left to find clients to earn it. Someone testified in court seeing Annie, alive and well, talking to a man described as, quote, over 40, taller than Annie, dark hair, foreign, and of shabby, genteel appearance. He was wearing a Sherlock Holmes-esque hat, and this was at 5.30 a.m. Annie's body was found just before 6 that same morning, lying on the ground near a doorway in a backyard. The resident of the home heard talking around 5.30, um, plus the sound of something falling against a fence. In her possession, Annie had two pills for a lung condition she was known to suffer from, part of a torn envelope that contained the pills, a piece of muslin, and a comb, Missing from her body, however, were two brass rings she always wore, although it's impossible to know if these were pawned by Annie herself or stolen by her murderer. Her throat and abdominal cuts were almost identical to those of Mary Nichols and were the work of a blade of a smaller size. No one heard or saw anything related to the actual murder. There was no evidence of a struggle taking place. There was a stark difference, though, to the Nichols case. Annie's intestines were thrown out of her abdomen over each of her shoulders. Her uterus was missing and was removed with such precision that led some police to believe that the crime had been committed by someone with surgical or anatomical knowledge. Annie's surviving relatives paid for her funeral but kept it a secret. Although her grave no longer exists, it was buried over in 2008, the area has been marked with a plaque. Whitechapel murder victim number five, canonical five number three. Elizabeth Long Liz Stride was born in Sweden in 1843. Unlike other Whitechapel murder victims, Elizabeth didn't fall into sex work due to alcohol abuse or a failed marriage. It appeared she chose that by lifestyle. She wanted to do that. Um, in 1865, she was registered as a as a prostitute and had began, oh sorry, and had been treated twice for sexually transmitted diseases. She also gave birth to a stillborn that that year. In 1866, she moved to London, most likely to be a domestic servant. She married John Thomas Stride in 1869. The couple lived a quiet life, nothing really documented during their marriage. They had no children, but they separated in 1881 for unknown reasons, and John died of tuberculosis in 1884. In 1885, Elizabeth lived off, on and off with a dock laborer named Michael Kidney. Um, she earned an income sewing and working as a housekeeper. She was fluent in Yiddish, English, and Swedish. Although she was known to have a calm temperament, normally, Long Liz found herself in court numerous times for being drunk and disorderly. She left Kidney a few days before her murder, most likely due to alcohol. On September 29th, she was seen with a client around 11 p.m. He was wearing a bowler hat. 
At 11.45 p.m., she was seen with another client, this one wearing a peaked cap. At 12.35 a.m., September 30th, she was seen with a man in a hard felt hat, and he was carrying a large package. Elizabeth Stride's body was found 25 minutes later. The area she was found in was so dark, her discoverer had to light a match to see her. Blood was still flowing from her neck. Like the two previous murders, no one had seen or heard anything suspicious. No money was found on her body. Although she had several clients that night, it was possibly taken. <clears throat> her throat was cut from left to right, and her abdomen was mutilated. During this time, a series of letters and postcards were received by Scotland Yard. So I actually have um, links to those letters. I, I didn't read them. Um, if you want to see them, you can. They're kind of long. There's three of them. There's the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. There's links to all three of those on this website. If you type in Cabernet and True Crime and Jack the Ripper, you'll find it. Promise. It's the first thing that comes up. I checked. <laughs> um, okay. Whitechapel murder victim number six, canonical five number four. Catherine Eddowes, as she would finally be called, was born in 1842 and was one of 11 children. She had two successive common-law husbands, Tom Conway and John Kelly. In total, she had one daughter and two sons. Um, she took to drinking in 1880 and left all of that behind. She began sex work to pay her rent. Um, she had the tattoo of TC on her left forearm, believed to be for her first husband. Catherine Eddowes was killed literally an hour after Elizabeth Stride, although her night had started a little differently. At 8.30 p.m. on September 29th, she was found laying drunk on the side of the road and was taken into police custody. She was kept there until she was sober enough to leave and was released around 1 a.m. Catherine was last seen alive by three witnesses at 1.35 a.m. talking to a man described as having a fair mustache, wearing a navy jacket, a peaked cloth cap, and a red scarf. She was killed and mutilated shortly after, and her body was discovered at 1.45 a.m. Nothing unusual had been reported. Eddowes had experienced the same type of scene the previous three had, her throat being cut and stomach slashed. Her kidney had been expertly removed, showing a familiarity for butchering animals. She was also missing her uterus, and her face had been mutilated. Um, and this is another writer's note. Writer's note, there are no photos included from Eddowes' crime scene because, in my personal opinion, Eddowes, as well as the next victim, are too graphic to be shared. If you'd like to see them, believe me, they're on the internet, but just not here. I, that was, she's the one that I was like, I had included postmortem for almost everybody else, for literally everybody else, because, um, it's just, they just look like they're sleeping. It's not anything scary or anything. Her, I can't look at her <laughs> crying scene, but I can't, I can't. I, it really, it really bothers me. So, um, it's not here. And same for canonical five, canonical five, number five. That's, I didn't want to post that on this so it's not because it's my podcast and I'll do what I want <laughs> um so Whitechapel murder victim number seven canonical five number five Mary Jane Kelly's origins are obscure and undocumented it's thought she was born in 1863 in Ireland but no one's quite sure if this date is factual it makes J Mary Jane the youngest of the Ripper's victims in 1879 it appeared she was married to a coal miner but they he died two or three years later in a mine explosion her time after this is purely speculation, though it seems logical that, with the death of her husband, is when she took up sex work. On November 8, 1888, Kelly was seen um, by a fellow sex worker at 11.45 p.m. She was returning home, intoxicated with a stout, ginger-haired man wearing a bowler hat. At 2 a.m., Kelly asked a friend to borrow money, but he turned her down. 
Kelly was later seen talking to an opulently dressed man, his appearance making him suspicious in the neighborhood. Kelly wasn't seen alive after. On the morning of November 5th, Kelly's landlord sent his assistant to collect her rent. She was six weeks behind on her payments. When she didn't respond to his knocking, he pushed aside a coat that was being used for a curtain and saw her mutilated body laying on the bed. Her throat had been cut all the way down to the spine, her heart was missing, her abdomen had been emptied of most of her organs, and no one ever found the opulently dressed man. Kelly is widely considered Jack the Ripper's last victim. It's assumed he stopped due to death, imprisonment, emigration, or institutionalism. The Canonical Five all have three very important things in common. All murders occurred at night, on or close to a weekend, and usually at the end of um, a month or one week after. Mutilation became increasingly severe, but it's believed that the killer may have been interrupted during his time with Stride. After Kelly, there are four more murders that occur in Whitechapel, but as you'll see, they really don't fit the bill for Jack the Ripper. So, mur- Whitechapel murder victim number eight. Rose Milet was found strangled on December 20th, 1888. No sign of a struggle. It's believed she accidentally hanged herself with her collar, either due to being drunk or that she completed suicide. Um, the inquest jury ruled homicide, but there really wasn't a lot of evidence to lead to that decision. Whitechapel murder victim number nine. Alice McKenzie was found on July 17, 1889. Her left cardioid artery was severed, her throat had been cut, and she had a few minor bruises and cuts. It's possible this was the work of Jack, but most likely a copycat killer. Whitechapel murder victim number 10. A headless and legless torso was found under a railway arch on September 10, 1989. It was never identified and is referred to as the Pynchon Street Torso. Whitechapel murder victim number 11. Frances Coles was found on February 13, 1891 under a railway arch. Her throat had been cut, but she wasn't mutilated. James Thomas Sadler was arrested for her murder and believed to be the Ripper, but was discharged for lack of evidence. There are numerous victims, um, numerous other victims in Whitechapel at this time, but during the time of Jack the Ripper, London was plagued with a torso killer, suitably called the Thames Torso Murders of 1887 to 1889. So, there, what a time to have two rampant serial killers going on around the same time. How horrifying. Um, and it's, over so this had a lot of people on it trying to solve and even today there's so many people who are still trying to solve this this but it's been so long and the evidence is so shoddy and people's testimonies are all over the place um I don't think it'll ever be solved but in total over 2,000 people were interviewed and upwards of 300 were investigated for the Ripper murders 80 people were detained but the case remains unsolved so that, my friends, was the the story of Jack the Ripper. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, sorry I get freaked out about some crime scene photos. Um, happy True Crime Tuesday. And I have to go get ready for work now. So <laughs> I'll catch you guys on the flip side.